Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Discussing hot topics such as the school curriculum, abortion, and sex change procedures, two Illinois gubernatorial candidates faced off in a televised debate last night. Incumbent Senator Marco Rubio defends his positions in Tuesday's debate. Congresswoman Val Demings challenges on issues of voting rights, gun control, and abortion. We have the highlights from the contentious debate. President Biden's midterm strategy, timing, and choosing his policies to boost voter turnout and help Democrats in the midterms. What are the biggest issues states are putting on ballots this year for the upcoming election? Find out the main themes voters will decide on. A second loss for special counsel John Durham, a key source for the Steele dossier, was acquitted on charges of lying to the FBI. We bring you analysis from an investigative journalist on the verdict. Russian President Vladimir Putin has declared martial law in four unilaterally annexed regions of Ukraine, Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia. Putin also instructed the government to set up a special coordination committee to boost Moscow's war effort. It means he intends to fight back after a series of major losses since early September. Moscow claimed the four occupied regions as its own last month, but is struggling to fend off Ukraine's advance. Following Putin's decree, Russian officials stationed in Kherson, one of the four regions, have urged civilians to evacuate as they expected an imminent Ukrainian attack. It remains to be seen how quickly or effectively the new order will strengthen Russia's military position on the ground or what impact it will have on public opinion. And back in the states, gubernatorial candidates in Illinois faced off in a debate last night. Transgender issues, abortion, and school curriculum were at the forefront of the discussion. In Illinois, incumbent Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker is running against Republican candidate Darren Bailey. On Tuesday night, Illinois voters heard the two argue on school curriculum, violence, abortion, and more during a televised debate. Governor Pritzker is perfectly fine with our children getting abortions without their parents knowing anything about it. I think that's extreme. Governor Pritzker is perfectly fine injecting his gender curriculum, the first of its kind in the nation, into our schools. Woke ideology. I think that's extreme. Governor Pritzker's Family Foundation is the primary sponsor for experimental gender surgeries that, in children's hospitals that's all ridiculous. across this nation, right here in Chicago. False. He wants to jail doctors and jail women oh, who are lo- seeking to exercise their reproductive rights. I, I have stood my whole life for women exercising their rights, especially their reproductive rights. Parents can opt out of sex education. Schools can opt out of sex education teaching sex ed in their schools. Uh, Darren Bailey ignores all of that. Uh, The fact is it's a national standard we're suggesting for schools all across the state. He also talks about CRT. Mm. CRT is not taught in schools in Illinois. It just is not. He's making that up. One main issue the two don't agree on is sex changing procedures for kids. Republican candidate Bailey accuses the governor of taking parents out of the decision process. You signed, you believe that children you of any age can make whatever right decision for their health that they want to make. I believe parents have the best interest in mind for their children, and parents should be making that decision, not doctors or teachers or governors. 
Look, I think doctors, parents, and those kids uh, are working together to determine what's best for them. I think uh, our hospitals, especially Lurie, which is one of the great children's hospitals in the entire nation, are very responsible about these things. But look, I stand up for the rights of our LGBTQ community to make decisions for themselves. Bailey also accuses the governor of being too soft on crime and says Illinois' sanctuary status should be revoked. Pritzker says he invested in state police and plans to go against gangs in an attempt to lower crime. Candidates for the U.S. Senate debated in Florida yesterday. Incumbent Senator Marco Rubio is seeking a third six-year term. Congresswoman Val Demings challenged the senator on issues like voting rights, gun control, and abortion. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on last night's debate. Demings came out swinging on Tuesday, accusing Rubio of being a serial liar willing to say anything in order to win. What we know is that the senator supports no exceptions. He can make his mouth say anything today. He's good at that, by the way. What day is it and what is Marco Rubio saying? I've said time and time again, and he knows it, that I support a woman's right to choose up to the time of viability. Rubio has expressed his personal opposition to abortion in all cases, but says he backs exceptions to restrictions because that's what the majority of people support and that's what can pass. I'm 100% pro-life, because I, not because I want to deny anyone their rights, but because I believe that innocent human life is worthy of the protection of our laws. That said, every bill I've ever sponsored on abortion, every bill I've ever voted for, has exceptions. Demings enters the final weeks of her campaign to unseat Rubio in a stronger position than many observers expected in the conservative-leaning state. She has raised close to $65 million, nearly double what Rubio has amassed. Recent polls show the former Orlando police chief within reach of Rubio, but still five percentage points behind him ahead of the November 8th midterm election. The two also clashed on the topics of gun control and voting rights. I'm not the person standing on the stage who supports suppressing the right to vote. Rubio defended his position on the issues, saying gun control laws proposed by Democrats would not have stopped shootings like the one at Parkland. Demings dug in on the issue of voting rights. We should protect voting rights for everyone, and we need a federal law to keep everybody accountable. Rubio took issue with her claims, asserting that it's never been easier to vote in Florida. We're talking about this. We're talking about, number one, when you go vote, you show an ID. I have been a Hispanic man my entire life. I'm a minority. I've never felt like producing an ID disadvantages my ability to vote. Everyone has an ID. You can't even check into a hotel. You can't buy Sudafed at Walgreens without an ID. Democrats currently hold slim majorities in the House of Representatives and the Senate. With Republicans favored to win a majority in the House, competitive races in states like Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Arizona have increased Democrats' chances of defending the majority in the Senate. Demings is hoping to add Florida to that list. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Over to Arizona, early voting is underway for the November midterms, and the state has several crucial races, including the race for governor and for the U.S. Senate. Let's take a look. NTD's Molina Wise Cup went to early voting locations in Arizona to find out more about what voters there have to say about this year's midterm elections. What are some of the top issues they care most about this year? Abortion seems to be a big issue at current. Probably a big one would be Roe v. Wade, the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Some of the topics that are on my mind this year are probably just uh, reproductive care um, here in Arizona. It's a big ballot. It's a big issue on the ballot. 
um, as well as just gender affirming care for a lot of people here in the state. While abortion seems to be a big issue this year, other voters also talked about issues that are more relevant to Arizona as a border state. There's some big issues right now in Arizona, um, especially with drugs and immigration. The fentanyl problem in Phoenix is like the worst it's ever been. Border control is one of the biggest things here in Arizona. That's it's a major concern for us. Definitely the economy. Just uh, just watching inflation go the wrong way and. That's probably my, my biggest concern, and then after that would just be border security. Still, there are other priorities on different voters' minds. What's at stake is Medicare and uh, Medicaid and also Social Security. The top issue, I think, is the preservation of democracy. Yeah, that's a big one for me. Arizona's Senate election could determine which party controls the Senate. Democratic incumbent Mark Kelly is facing off against Trump-endorsed Republican Blake Masters. What do voters have to say about the two candidates and about how Trump's endorsement plays into it? Kelly just, I don't, I don't think he had a great debate. He sort of attacked Blake Masters, but he never really talked about what he wanted to do once he got into office. And so that was something I, I saw and I was like, that's kind of a problem. I don't think there's enough of the two candidates talking about the issues. I, I don't think Kelly's running on anything more than just he's not Blake Masters. And I think uh, Blake is getting destroyed by all sorts of negative ads too. And I don't think we're learning enough about what they're for. I don't put all my weight on anyone's endorsement. I've, I've tried to uh, gain the knowledge to vote the way I think is best, and uh, his endorsement means a little, but it's not everything. Early voting in Arizona began last Wednesday, October 12th, and will run until Friday, November 4th. Voters also have the choice to cast their ballots by mail. Now to the Pennsylvania Senate race. Democratic nominee John Fetterman's health has emerged as a widely discussed issue. He suffered a severe stroke days before the May 17th primary and has made limited public appearances. His opponent, Republican nominee Dr. Mehmet Oz, has repeatedly questioned Fetterman's health, as have multiple media outlets. A group of Pennsylvania physicians released a statement requesting that Fetterman unveil his medical records. They criticized him for not proving that he is healthy. In response, Real Doctors Against Oz tweeted their support for Fetterman. After the primary, Fetterman spent much of his time at home, away from the campaign trail. He held a double-digit lead in the polls most of the summer, but the race has tightened in recent months. And Georgia's top election official says midterm voters turned out in record numbers on the first day of early in-person voting. More than 130,000 people cast ballots on Monday, an 85% increase from the last midterm vote back in 2018. There are more than 7 million active voters in Georgia. The state allows in-person early voting through the Friday before Election Day. Democrat strategists say President Biden is timing his policies to boost voter turnout and help Democrats in November. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more on the most recent example, pushing abortion legislation before the midterms. President Biden Tuesday promised that the first bill he sends to Capitol Hill next year will be one that legalizes abortion nationwide. That is, if Americans elect more Democrats in the midterms. Folks, if we do that, Here's the promise I make to you and the American people. The first bill that I will send to the Congress will be to codify Roe v. Wade. And when Congress passes it, I'll sign it in January, 50 years after Roe was first decided the law of the land. In June, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, shifting decisions about abortion back to the state level. 
Tuesday was the first time Biden prioritized abortion legislation in this way ahead of the November midterms. He's likely trying to boost voter turnout for his party. Abortion has been a key motivating factor for Democrats this year. We're only 22 days away from uh, the most consequential election uh, in our history, in my view, in recent history at least. Elections where the choice and the stakes are crystal clear, especially when it comes to the right to choose. Three weeks ahead of the midterms, Biden's approval rating is low. A Reuters Ipsos poll this week found that 40 percent of Americans approve of how Biden is doing, while 54 percent disapprove. Historically, the president's party almost always has a bad midterm. Democrat strategists told Fox News that Biden is likely timing his policies to help his party avoid a Republican landslide. In particular, recent actions seem focused on rallying young voters who often vote Democrat. Examples include pardoning all federal offenses of simple marijuana possession and canceling up to $20,000 in student loan debt for borrowers. While these actions could help rally some young voters, the economy and inflation still rank as chief concern for most Americans. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. The Supreme Court declined to take up a case on whether those born in American Samoa should have full U.S. citizenship. Currently, residents can't vote in presidential elections, but can apply to be naturalized. The government of American Samoa and their non-voting delegate in the U.S. House said the Supreme Court should not take up the case. They said it could have unintended and potentially harmful impacts. A lower court's ruling said they would not, quote, impose citizenship on an unwilling people from a courthouse thousands of miles away. Many American Samoans defend the current status of their territory and local system of government, but others were disappointed. The lead plaintiff told the Epic Times, quote, I was born on U.S. soil, have a U.S. passport, and pay my taxes like everyone else. Ballot measures related to abortion, marijuana, and crime are among a diverse array of issues that voters in 37 states will decide at the polls this fall. Taxes, the minimum wage, and the structure of state government are also being voted on. Entity's Daniel Monahan has the details. Abortion has been a particularly hot-button issue since the high court's overturning of Roe v. Wade this June. It will be on the ballot in five states on November 8th. California, Vermont, and Michigan voters will weigh in on proposals to ensure abortion access, while Montana and Kentucky residents will vote on whether to curb it. Adult recreational use of marijuana could be legal in nearly half of the 50 states after November 8th. Voters in Arkansas, Maryland, Missouri, North Dakota, and South Dakota will make their choices in that matter. Adult use of marijuana is currently legal in 19 states, while 37 states have legal medical marijuana programs. In Colorado, voters will decide on Proposition 122, the decriminalization and regulated access program for certain psychedelic plants and fungi initiative. On to crime, Alabama's Amendment 1 and Ohio's Issue 1 both propose tightening bail requirements. Meanwhile, Missouri's Amendment 4 would allow the state legislature to require that cities increase police funding without state reimbursement. As for taxation, Louisiana and Georgia measures seek property tax exemptions for the elderly, disabled, and veterans. And Idaho voters will see proposed income and corporate tax changes. California's Proposition 30 would impose a tax on income of more than $2 million for a zero-emissions vehicles and wildfire prevention initiative. Meanwhile, Arizona's Proposition 132 seeks to require a 60% supermajority to approve any ballot measure that increases taxes. And record-setting inflation has spurred demands for minimum wage increases. 
Nebraska and Nevada voters will see proposed constitutional amendments addressing minimum wages. Nebraska Initiative 433 would increase the state's minimum wage to $15 per hour by January 1, 2026. In Illinois, voters will see Amendment 1, a right to collective bargaining measure, while for voters in Tennessee, a right to work amendment is on the ballot. Seven measures across six states address elections and campaign funding. Michigan's proposal, too, the right to voting policies amendment would reduce the requirements for legal voting. Meanwhile, voters will weigh in on election integrity measures, including Arizona's Proposition 309, the voter identification requirements for mail-in ballots and in-person voting measure, and Nebraska's Initiative 432, the photo voter identification initiative. Now on to petition rules. Voters in three states will see four proposals seeking to impose restrictions on the citizen initiative process. Arkansas's Issue 2 would require a 60% supermajority to adopt ballot measures, while Arizona's Propositions 128 and 129 would tighten language and title requirements. Let's take a look at state constitutional conventions. Voters in three states will be asked if they want to appoint delegates to a convention to revise and amend their state's constitution. They're among 14 states in which the state's constitution mandates the measure be presented to voters at stipulated intervals. Concerning state government, Arizona voters will decide if they want to create a lieutenant governor office. While in Arkansas and Idaho, proposals would allow the state legislature to call special sessions without the governor's assent. Michigan and North Dakota voters will be asked if they want to impose term limits on state lawmakers, and in North Dakota, the governor. And finally, sports betting. California voters will see two proposed constitutional amendments seeking to legalize sports wagering, with tax revenues from betting being put toward addressing homelessness and mental illness. Gaming in California and tribal casinos has been legal for more than 20 years, while gambling at horse tracks has been legal since the 1930s. But online and mobile sports betting, an estimated $3 billion annual market, is illegal in California. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. With Danchenko acquitted, two cases brought on by special counsel John Durham have ended. We get some analysis on this from an investigative journalist who has kept a close eye on the disproven allegations of collusion between Trump and Russia. Joining us now is Lee Smith, columnist and author of The Plot Against the President. He's also the host of Over the Target on Epic TV. Thank you for your time today, Lee. Hey, thanks for inviting me on. Uh, important times, important issues to discuss. Oh, absolutely. Now, a jury on Tuesday found Russian national Igor Danchenko, the primary subsource of the anti-Trump dossier, not guilty on all four counts of making false statements to the FBI. What is the significance of this in terms of Durham's investigation? Uh, well, it's certainly, uh, it's certainly a disappointment for lots of people, for all of us uh, who are hoping for accountability, uh, that the FBI and that other people involved in the anti-Trump operation would be held accountable, and unfortunately that hasn't happened here. We had you back on the show in May when Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman was acquitted. Do you suspect bias in the courts as a result of these verdicts, or that these individuals really were not lying to the FBI? Uh, well, <clears throat> there was certainly bias in the courts, absolutely. I mean, these are drawn from jury pools that are, uh, the Washington, D.C. jury pool is almost, uh, uh, unanimously uh, democratic. It's a little different in Northern Virginia, but not by very much at this point. But the bigger problem was uh, the bigger problem was is e e uh, any uh, jury pool would recognize the bigger problem here looming in the background was the FBI, right? The problem was not the FBI sources who lied to the FBI as Michael Sussman did and as Igor Danchenko did. They certainly lied. But the bigger problem was the FBI itself. 
Lee, you talk about the FBI itself. What does this mean for calls to end the FBI? Uh, I think this will further fuel calls to end, end the FBI. If the FBI can't be held accountable, uh, if no one will bother to reform the FBI except cosmetic changes run out of FBI headquarters, there will be many, many, many more Republicans, many more conservatives, many independents, and even many on the left who have been fighting against, um, who have been fighting against intelligence community abuses since um, since the 1970s. So uh, it's going to be very hard for Republican lawmakers to defend the FBI at this point. Speaking of Republicans, let's jump to November. If the GOP does take control of the Senate, do you think there will be actions to further Durham's efforts? Uh, I think it's possible. I think it's going to depend on. I think it's going to depend on. Um, uh, leader Mitch McConnell. I mean, I, I think it's unlikely that McConnell will put much pressure on the Biden Justice Department. But I mean, who knows? McConnell may not come out of it being the leader. I know that Senator Rick Scott is making a uh, <laughs> appears to be making a run at McConnell, and under uh, under Rick Scott's leadership, it might be very different. There's a lot of pressure that can be put on Joe Biden, a lot of pressure that can be put on the uh, the Biden Justice Department to get accountability and to get to the facts here. Very interesting analysis, Lee Smith, author of the Plot Against the President. Great to have you on the show again. Thank you so much, Ken. Coming up, American workers are struggling to make ends meet. Find out what changes they are making to deal with inflation just after this break. The federal government announced a debt relief program on Tuesday. It's to help farmers who are falling behind on loan payments or facing foreclosure. It will provide $1.3 billion for about 36,000 borrowers. The program is funded from money set aside in the Inflation Reduction Act for farmers unable to pay back loans from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Around $600 million is going to 11,000 borrowers that haven't been able to pay for 60 days or longer. Farmers with direct loans receive about $52,000. Those with guaranteed loans are receiving around $172,000. Another $200 million is going towards borrowers who had their loans foreclosed and still owe money. It's meant to give them a fresh start. Around 2,000 farmers in this category will receive about $100,000 on average. Over $570 million will be used to help several additional groups. That includes farmers with delayed loan payments due to the pandemic and borrowers facing cash flow problems who ask for help to avoid missing payments. Those facing bankruptcy or foreclosure will be assessed on a case-by-case basis. The Treasury Department will assess how extreme weather increases insurance rates. Officials say they are taking a hard look at how weather-related disasters are driving rates. The Federal Insurance Office is requesting zip code level data from insurance companies regarding policies and prices. This is the first time the department has used its authority to ask insurance companies for that type of data. Even before Hurricane Ian slammed into Florida, homeowners in the state were paying three times the national average for their insurance premiums, about 4200 a year compared to the national average of 1500 Insurance companies are regulated at the state level, but this data could ultimately be used to determine whether changes are needed in the U.S. insurance market. 
more evidence that it's becoming harder for the American worker to keep up with the cost of living. A new survey finds a huge majority of Americans say their wages aren't keeping up with inflation as prices for nearly everything continue to rise. So what can you do if your expenses are outpacing your salary? Experts weigh in on how to adjust and survive. Historic inflation, soaring borrowing costs, and stagnant wages. New evidence that American workers struggle to make ends meet. I mean, how much more can people spend? I think the, the rubber is about to hit the road there. A new survey sponsored by Bank of America found that nearly three in four American workers surveyed said the cost of living is outpacing their salary and wages. The data also found that half of employees said that they have to take action to deal with the economic strain. And experts say adjusting your lifestyle is a key first step. Do you really need a new car? Do you really need extra subscriptions? A recession is the opportunity to look between what, where we spend our money and what we value and bring them into alignment. Among the group taking action, 21% are tapping into emergency savings to pay for bills, while 6% are dipping into their 401k and making a hardship withdrawal, and 20% are looking for a higher paying job. The data paints a dire picture of workers under significant financial pressure as crushing inflation erodes paychecks. There's a lot of people who are just realizing that paycheck to paycheck life is more and more of kind of the default that a lot of us are experiencing because of the fact that prices continue to outpace uh, our wages. Money coach Janice Torres says that's pushing some to make major career moves. I'm talking to a lot of people who are thinking about how to diversify their income, either through gig work or starting their own business or even multiple jobs. She recommends turning your creative skills into a side hustle or turning your professional skills into a consulting business and sell directly to customers. The Internal Revenue Service will let Americans keep more of their income next year due to inflation. Since tax rates are automatically adjusted for inflation, there will be higher cutoffs for all seven income tax brackets and a higher standard deduction when you file your tax return. For example, the income thresholds for the top tax rate, 37%, are going up 7% from this year. And the standard deduction, the baseline income that people can claim tax-free, will see the largest increase since 1985. The standard deduction for married couples will rise by $1,800. For individuals, it's a $900 increase. And this surveillance video just surfaced showing Gabby Petito with Brian Laundrie days before he murdered her. The footage was captured using surveillance cameras at a Whole Foods in Jackson, Wyoming on August 27th of last year. It shows the couple parking, walking inside, shopping for a few minutes, and then returning to their vehicle. Petito was reported missing on September 11th, and just 10 days later, her body was found near Wyoming's Grand Teton National Park. A medical examiner confirmed Petito was strangled to death. The following month, the FBI identified Laundrie's remains in an environmental park in Florida. And finally, the case came to a close in January when the FBI found a notebook near Laundrie's remains that revealed a written confession. Two verdicts have been reached in the Kristen Smart murder trial. A jury found Paul Flores guilty of murdering Kristen Smart in 1996. A separate jury in the same case found his father, Ruben Flores, not guilty. Prosecutors say Flores raped or attempted to rape Smart in his dorm at California Polytechnic State University. She was a 19-year-old freshman at the time. Ruben Flores was accused of helping his son move her body to his home and hiding it under his deck. Paul Flores now faces 25 years to life in prison. 
French manufacturer Lafarge has admitted that it paid millions of dollars to terrorist groups. The U.S. Justice Department described the case as the first of its kind. Today, I announce the historic guilty pleas of two companies for conspiring to provide material support to foreign terrorist organizations. These are the first companies ever charged by the Justice Department with providing material support to foreign terrorist organizations. In the summer of 2014, the world watched in horror as ISIS murdered innocent journalists and aid workers. That same summer, Lafarge was in business with ISIS, securing profits and market share and capitalizing on the group's brutality. Lafarge also hid its partnership with these terrorists through a web of fake contracts, falsified invoices, corrupt intermediaries, and off-system email accounts. Lafarge became part of the Swiss-based group in Wholesome in 2015, but before that, in 2011, it paid almost $6 million to Islamic State to keep a factory in Syria open. The militant group was engaged in torturing kidnapped Westerners at the time. Lafarge made the payments to protect its employees and the shipment of raw materials into the plant. When the company eventually withdrew from the factory in 2014, ISIS took possession and sold the remaining cement. Assistant Attorney General Matthew Olson said there's simply no justification for a company to finance designated terrorist organizations. As part of the plea agreement, Lafarge agreed to pay about $700 million in fines and penalties. The U.S. military intercepted two Russian bomber jets flying near the Alaskan coast. The North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD, reported the news. The bombers entered and operated within the Alaskan Air Defense Identification Zone. They were intercepted by two Air Force F-16s. The Russian aircraft are capable of carrying nuclear weapons. NORAD's statement does not indicate if the bombers were armed. The statement said the bombers did not enter American or Canadian territory and stayed within international airspace. NORAD also said the encounter is not seen as provocative. Interceptions of Russian military planes in the Alaska zone are relatively common and occur several times per year. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, a potential dilemma for Americans helping China advance its semiconductor industry. Will they keep their jobs or their citizenship? The U.S. and South Korea hold joint drills. They've set up special floating bridges to help military vehicles cross rivers. We'll have the details and North Korea's response when we return. Americans working for China's semiconductor sector are facing a potential dilemma. A U.S. ban on semiconductors could force them to make a choice. Stick to their jobs that help China advance its microchip technology or keep their citizenship. NTD's Juliet Song has more. The U.S. is tightening its stranglehold on China's microchip development. The Commerce Department is coming out with a new restriction, barring U.S. persons from helping China's microchip development without a license. Here's the group that falls under the U.S. person's category. U.S. citizens, permanent residents, people that live in the U.S. and American companies. The new measure is a blow for China, as many key persons helping the regime's development in the semiconductor sector have U.S. residency. 
Among them, at least 43 senior executives at Chinese semiconductor companies are American citizens. That's according to a report from the Wall Street Journal. One example is Gerald In. He's the founder of AMEC, China's top semiconductor equipment maker. In spent almost two decades working for the U.S. microchip giants, like Intel and Applied Materials. After stints in Silicon Valley, In went back to China and founded AMEC. Semiconductors are key to U.S.-China competition. These tiny chips are the hearts and brains of modern electronics and make everything from iPhones to cars to fighter jets possible. Advanced chips are also critical for military technology. The U.S. ban drew immediate reaction. Several big names in the industry have put holds on their American employees' work in China while waiting for officials to clarify the rules. Examples include Dutch equipment maker ASML and U.S. chipmakers KLA and LAMP Research. The U.K.'s Foreign Affairs Office has summoned the Chinese ambassador's deputy. That's after a Hong Kong protester was beaten up inside the grounds of Manchester's Chinese consulate. The chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee delivered a message on the issue to members of parliament. And today's Jane Worrell sent us this report. Why? Footage captured on Sunday shows a Hong Kong protester being beaten up on the grounds of Manchester's Chinese consulate. The man known as Bob spent a night in hospital. The chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Alicia Kearns MP, said the fundamental right to protest in the UK must be upheld. We cannot allow the CCP to import their beating of protesters, their silencing of free speech and their failure to allow time and time again protests on British soil. This is a chilling escalation. We have seen continued persecution of the Uyghur, of Tibetans, of Hong Kongers and all those who come to our country to seek refuge. What took place on Sunday suggests they cannot seek refuge here and have their voices heard and our job is to make sure that their voices are not silenced. She said any Chinese official involved in the beatings should be prosecuted, or if they can't be prosecuted, she called on them to be expelled from the country. Foreign Office Minister Jesse Norman said the UK government is extremely concerned at the apparent scenes of violence and had told the Chinese embassy to allow people to protest peacefully. Speaking to us on an audio call, one of the protest organisers known as Paul said Hong Kongers who were on site were shocked. We are trying to have a peaceful protest outside the premises, not, in, not, not even trying to attack them or do anything, not shouting at them or not shouting anything. But they, they, we don't expect they came out to you know, take our stuff away and, uh, and, and, and uh, our uh, protesters. The video from Sunday shows one of the protesters being dragged into the compound of the embassy. But in response, China's foreign ministry said that disturbing elements illegally entered the consulate, endangering the security of a Chinese diplomatic mission. Manchester police continued their investigation. Jane Worrell, NTD News. A new government scheme would make clandestine political activity by foreign agents illegal. The Foreign Influence Registration Scheme will require anyone to declare if they're acting on behalf of a foreign state. It's been introduced as part of the National Security Bill, which is working its way through Parliament. Ken McCollum, director of the MI5, said the scheme will make it harder and riskier for foreign agents to operate covertly in the UK. The United States and Australia already have similar schemes. 
U.S. and South Korean troops build floating bridges to carry tanks across rivers. It's just practice, but it's part of larger joint drills taking place on the Korean peninsula. Main battle tanks, armored personnel carriers, and other military vehicles cross the bridges, while white smoke screens and overhead flares simulated a battle scene. The drill involved forces of the South Korean Army's 11th Mobile Division and a mock attack. The pontoon bridges were set up by U.S. and South Korean engineering units. The drills last for 12 days and include 22 field exercises. North Korea has condemned the ongoing drills and has test-fired a number of rockets and artillery in response. The United States and South Korea say their drills are defensive and necessary for deterrence. A state-run news agency in North Korea reports that the country plans to fire more artillery shells off its east and west coasts. It says it's in response to South Korea firing shells on Tuesday. Meta, Facebook's parent company, has to sell Giphy, a database and search engine for GIFs. They accepted the ruling this week after it was reissued by a British competition regulator. The decision by the Competition and Markets Authority was first announced last year. Meta's appeal was unsuccessful. The regulator again declared that Meta's acquisition of Giphy would allow it to, quote, limit other social media platforms' access to GIFs. Now Meta must sell Giphy in its entirety to a suitable buyer. The regulator added that this was its final decision. Bloomberg reported that this is the first time a global regulator has forcefully decoupled an acquisition by a big tech company. Business Insider reported that Meta was disappointed by the regulator's decision but accepts the ruling. Damage has been detected in Europe's largest nuclear reactor. This comes as European officials say they're bracing for potential energy shortages this winter. Damage in the feedwater pumps of a nuclear reactor in Finland was found during maintenance work. This will likely delay the startup of regular production. Finland's national grid operator has warned of potential power blackouts in the coming winter if the reactor can't reliably supply electricity. Imports of power to Finland from Russia stopped in May, and Russian power supply to Europe in general was cut back drastically. The reactor was originally meant to start operating in 2009, but has faced several technical issues which sparked delays and a lengthy legal battle. Over in Hungary, the country is opening a container terminal near its border with Ukraine. This is Europe's largest land-based container terminal. It's called the East-West Gate Terminal. The goal is to increase shipments of Ukrainian grain via Hungary to ports on the Adriatic Sea. The terminal allows containers to be transferred between trains and trucks. It costs close to $100 million and is eventually expected to handle up to 22,000 tons of grain per month. Ukraine is one of the world's biggest grain exporters, mainly by sea. Exports were largely halted early in the war with Russia. They resumed under a deal brokered by the United Nations and Turkey. Hungary says the terminal will have a huge role in shipping grain from Ukraine. Strikes are expanding across France as more workers walk off the job demanding higher pay. They included teachers and transport workers. With inflation soaring, the sweeping job action has become a major test for President Emmanuel Macron since his re-election in May. France is already reeling from a weeks-long oil worker strike, causing shortages at the gas pumps. That pushed President Macron to hold a crisis meeting Monday with his top ministers. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, a fancy restaurant at the Eiffel Tower is serving energy-efficient meals, making the best of the minimal cooking and the ingredients close to home. And the world's largest vintage carnival is up for sale. 
It was featured in movies Rocket Man and Paddington 2. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Good to have you back with us. A fine dining restaurant at the foot of the Eiffel Tower not only boasts a spectacular view of Paris, but gives diners an idea of how the whole industry can prepare an energy-efficient meal. Nestled on the first floor of the majestic Eiffel Tower, Madame Brasserie is dealing with the unfolding energy crisis in its own way. Michelin-starred chef Thierry Marx has made it a showcase for local cuisine, cooked with minimal energy consumption. Here is a dish of leeks that comes from just 30 miles away. Seasonal leeks. We simply cooked it in its own juices and then we wrapped it in paper, as a leek is 80% water on average. We cook it in its own juices and we're going to finish it simply by passing it over a flame. The leeks are then stripped of their hard skins, leaving the hearts to be served as a starter. The small steps that I've explained are found in this dish, making it pleasant to eat pleasant to pay, reducing the carbon impact of this dish, and at the same time, we don't have the impression that we're undergoing a revolution. Marx earned his first Michelin star in 1998, now runs several restaurants. He remarked on how the industry has grown more energy conscious over the years. If you had come into this kitchen 20 years ago, the heat would be at full blast as we're waiting for the evening service. All the stoves would be switched on, all the ovens would be on. Now his crew cooks on induction cookers with high-quality copper casseroles, which only heats the pan itself without warming up the entire kitchen. That has delivered a message amid the energy woes now plaguing Europe and the world. We must not think that just because we run a bistro, a brasserie, a restaurant, that we would be detached from all that by saying, I don't care. No, there is an awareness. At times, a little late in this profession, but there is a real awareness on the social impact, the value of our profession. The chef added that the entire restaurant has been designed to conserve water and energy since it opened in June. Automaker Mercedes-Benz is considering alternative sources of energy. That's according to the company's CEO. In an interview with CNN, Ola Kalenius said his company has been leaning more toward wind energy for its operations due to Russia sharply reducing its supply of gas to Germany. The German company started building a wind farm that will eventually provide more than 15% of its electricity needs. It also signed on to use a wind energy facility in the Baltic Sea that will add another 25% of capacity. Mercedes says it's aiming to go all-electric with its car lineup by 2030. This year, the company announced a plan to invest more than $58 billion into what it calls an emissions-free future. A traditional English traveling carnival has been running for the last 45 years. It finishes its final tour at the end of October and will then be up for sale. Carter Steam Fair is up for sale with the hope of finding a new owner. The fair has featured in the films Rocket Man and Paddington 2. It has various vintage rides and games, including a cheroplane, dodgems, and a coconut shy. All of the rides, which date from the 1890s to the 1960s, have been restored to their original style. The fun fair began in 1977 when John and Anna Carter bought an 1895 Jubilee Steam Gallopers ride. They then added more rides to their collection 
and became known as a specialist in vintage fairground rides. The newest of the rides was built in 1965. Their son, Joby Carter, who now manages the fair, said the decision to sell up has been a long time coming due to difficulties in finding staff and also due to the fair rides getting damaged through travelling. He hopes that the fair can find a new owner and ideally be located on a permanent site undercover. The fair's most recent tour started in April and has visited Surrey, Essex, Hertfordshire, London and Staffordshire, among others. Carter's Steam Fair completes the final leg of its last tour at Reading's Prospect Park on Sunday the 30th of October. Coming up, Qatar hosts a youth football tournament just a month before the FIFA World Cup kicks off. The competition boosts vulnerable kids from around the world. Details to come on NTD News Today. The Street Child World Cup celebrates the soccer talents of vulnerable children from across the globe who are living in extreme poverty. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the competition. The Street Child World Cup takes place in the same country that hosts the FIFA World Cup. This year, it's in Qatar's capital, Doha, ahead of the soccer tournament next month. The project was devised by John Rowe, who was inspired by a young boy he met in South Africa. I volunteered in South Africa in 2008 with street children with my daughters. And we met a boy called Andile playing football. He'd been on the streets for 10 years. And he said to us, when people see me on the streets, they say I am a street child. But when they see me playing football, they say I am a person. 28 teams from 24 countries represent children from around the world. The event brings together teams from Brazil, South Africa, Nicaragua, Ukraine, India, the Philippines, and Tanzania. It's about dignity. It's about I am somebody. And when these young people put on their national jerseys, when they hear their national anthem, when they raise their national flag, we are incredibly proud of them. Their whole country is incredibly proud of them. Sadak John played in the first tournament with Tanzania's team. He was raised by a single mother in a family of six boys. From the age of 12, he provided food for his family. But he also played soccer in the streets and was noticed by the training academy that enrolled him. Football for me it means everything because it was the first thing that um, brought me onto the spotlight and showed other people how wealthy I am and he showed other people how important I am. Today, he's a fashion entrepreneur and teaches soccer to local kids in his community. As a young leader, he helps young players by telling his story and encouraging them to follow their dream. Through Street Child World Cup, I wish to see uh, changing these young people like to be the good leaders in their communities, to believe in themselves, to believe that they are somebody, to believe that no matter what other people think of them, they will just keep going on to reach their dreams. The first tournament took place in 2010 in South Africa. The competition doesn't only celebrate these children's love for soccer, it also advocates for protection from violence and access to education for both genders. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Qatar Airways is preparing for the upcoming Soccer World Cup. The company's CEO announced changes to air transit in order to accommodate fans arriving from different countries. Qatar Airways has withdrawn flights from 18 destinations to make space at Hamad International Airport. That's for airlines carrying fans to next month's Soccer World Cup. 
Airline executives say the priority now is to accommodate the hundreds of flights that will be landing in the country for the tournament. It will start at the end of November and end shortly before Christmas. During that time, Qatar expects about 500 shuttle flights a day, as well as hundreds more charter flights and private jet flights to take place. A total of 32 nations are taking part in the Cup, with matches spread across eight stadiums, all located within 25 miles of central Doha. A rescue dog brought into a Brazilian police station has now become the station's biggest star. He's not only become a police mascot, but also one of Brazil's most beloved internet sensations. His name is Corporal Oliveira. He was picked up in 2019 by police officer Cristiano Oliveira in Rio de Janeiro. The officer found him hungry and injured near a military police station where he works. Oliveira says his life changed after learning how to manage his canine friend's social media account. It has more than 100,000 followers. Oliveira says that if he doesn't post constantly, fans start to ask questions. The dog, geared in a police uniform, including a shirt, a toy gun, and sunglasses, has become the official mascot of Rio de Janeiro's 17th Battalion. He patrols alongside human officers and even checks driver's licenses. On the streets, it's not uncommon to see a fan ask for a picture with a four-legged corporal. Your four-legged friend can join in Thanksgiving festivities this year. Bush Beer has debuted a limited-edition dog brew for the upcoming holiday. But don't worry, your canine won't turn clumsy and start stumbling around the room. The drink is non-alcoholic. Among the ingredients in the 2022 beverage, turkey broth, turmeric, and ginger. In 2020, Bush released a different dog brew that officials say sold out within a day. An amazing sight in outer space, and it was caught on camera. One of the brightest explosions in space ever recorded was captured by multiple telescopes in space and on the ground. You can see the bright light flash quickly, followed by an afterglow. According to NASA, these gamma ray bursts are the most powerful class of explosions in the universe. Scientists believe this happens when a massive star about 2.4 billion light years away collapses into a supernova explosion and becomes a black hole. The star was likely much larger than our sun. Astronomers estimate that such a bright gamma ray burst may not appear again for decades. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. 